This is Tailgate Till May. I'm your host, Stephen Gorgie, and I'm excited to be back for another episode to talk about what you care about most in the world of college sports. And right now, that is the Final Four. I'm excited to be here, and I'm excited to be joined by my friend and co-host, Brian Kaufman. Brian, it's been a long time. How are you, man? I'm doing great. It's great to be back, you know. Uh Fatherhood's a lot, man. Uh, so, you know, once uh, I'm looking forward to being back full time once we're getting a little bit more consistent sleep, um, but needed to, needed to be back for the Final Four recap. Obviously, one instant classic and one how dominant is this team really type of game, um, but just an awesome weekend for sure. I had to send the text. I was like, I have to ask and see if Brian wants to join for this one. Yeah. I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to not, I don't want to push. I figured you'd, you'd be ready. It's like a guy coming back from an injury, right? It's like he'll, <laughs> when he's ready, he'll be ready. You don't yeah. want to push too hard, but it's the final four. So I had to push a little and I'm glad to have you back here. Uh, and, and what a night it was. So we'll get right into everything final four related, but first a reminder, you can find the show wherever you get your podcast, Apple, Spotify, Google, you name it. Basically, wherever you can find podcasts, you can find this show. You can also follow me on Twitter at Gorgon Sports. That's where you can see all my various college sports musings. And now it's spring. So, you know, you can hear some of my Orioles musings as well. Probably I'll be hitting that a little bit hot and heavy, but mixing some college baseball there, spring football, everything that you know and love as well. But don't be surprised by the O's tweets because they're going to be they're going to be coming. They are going to be coming soon. But. Look, we've got six months to talk about baseball. It's basketball season right now. It's the day after the Final Four, the morning after the Final Four. Brian mentioned it, an instant classic. San Diego State beats FAU 72-71 to on Lamont Butler's game-winning jumper. Brian, take me through what you were feeling, what you were thinking during that final minute and when that Lamont Butler shot fell. Yeah, no kidding. Well, much like the Orioles, FAU, I got a lot of good young players, right? And I was like, are they really going to do this? I think there was some extent, you know, a, a nine seed or worse has never won in the semifinals. They flashed that stat yesterday and it was like, is this the team to do it? Um, man, that last minute, last couple of minutes was absolutely crazy. And yeah, when the shot went up, man, it it was like the perfect camera angle too. Like it just looked good from the moment it left his hand. And, and not just that, like – one of his teammates was running off the bench. I feel like before it dropped through, it was like such an awesome reaction and celebration. I mean, that's exactly what you want from a final four game. And it, it really was uh, pretty special. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to dissect uh, in particular with this la last minute. I, I think like the best, you look at the fact that San Diego state calls timeout with 36 seconds left. And I'm under the impression that they're talking about their plan to foul. There's a 6.2 second differential between shot and game clock and they don't foul. And actually, and, and I don't know if I'm getting ahead of how you plan to have this conversation, but like Dusty May ended up taking a timeout on the other end. And I think he thought they were going to foul too. I don't think that they planned an offensive possession. And so when there was whatever, 15 or 17 seconds left, he was like, we, we got to draw something up. So um, listen, San Diego State's done it all year on their defense. And it seemed like coach trusted his defense to get a stop and and they got it at the right time and obviously went down and hit a big shot but man I, I, there was a lot of like a lot of interesting coaching going on in that last minute that I think is worth diving into for sure 
There was, and you know, I saw that there were the, the two teams had six total timeouts available to them with like just over a minute left, and I was like, man, we're gonna be in for yeah. a long <laughs> minute here. And you know, I'd actually written down, I had written down like, okay, this is how much, this is what actual time it is with one minute left oh, in the game nice. when they took that first time out. And I was like, I'm going to track this and like, <laughs> I'll bring this up on the show tomorrow. And I'll talk about how bad this is for college basketball. And then he hits the shot and I'm like, forget all that. Who cares? It doesn't matter how long that took. That was awesome. But I'll yeah. tell you, Brian, like I was pretty panicked for San Diego state. I didn't have much of a dog in, in, in this one really. I mean, I did bet San Diego state, um, but I, I wasn't like, I, I didn't have a ton of confidence in it. Uh, I, I thought it was the right side. It w- ended up not being minus two and a half. Uh, so, but I, I, I wasn't hugely invested in it other than just like enjoying the game, but I was pretty panicked for them as they were coming down the, uh, down the court and he's dribbling like into the corner kind of, he backs it out. And like how many college, ba- if you watch a lot of college basketball, how many games do you see end with just a, bad shot or no shot at all and it kind of felt like that was what was happening there like it wasn't even entirely clear like maybe he didn't even know how much time was left or what the Mm -hmm. game situation was but uh no that's not what happened he he did know he clearly knew he uh I'm not gonna say that's how they drew it up but he made a play he found a way to get a little bit of space. He took his shot. He got a fairly clean shot off. Like, I don't know that I can say FAU should have defended it this way or defended it that way. I think they defended it about as well as you can. But in basketball, sometimes good offense beats good defense. Sometimes a guy makes a shot, and that's what happened. And after the game, I heard Brian Dutcher say, marches for players marches for players. And that is something that kind of stuck with me because. That's what happened there. Lamont Butler, he made a play. He made a big-time play there, and Brian Dutcher had the confidence in his team that, hey, I'm going to let them. We are a defensive team. I am going to trust my defense to go get a stop. doesn't matter. Six-second differential. I'm going to trust them to go get a stop. I'm going to trust them to get a rebound, and I'm going to trust them to push it up the court and make a decision, make a play, especially without the defense being without allowing FAU to get their defense set. And uh, I think that that marches for players mantra will kind of stick with me because I actually think it's something that more coaches should probably adopt. I am a big fan of I'm a big fan of not taking the time out after a stop, you know, in a last possession type of play, because I think that allowing the defense to get set is a bigger advantage for the defense than whatever you are going to draw up, whatever your action is that you're going to draw up. Like in reality, at the end of the game, 10 seconds left, defenses and almost every defense in college basketball is switching everything, right? So, you know, how much can you do? They're they're gonna switch everything. It's not like you can you're gonna draw up this crazy, you know, football esque fumble ruski flea flicker trick play. Uh, at some point, your players just have to go make plays, and I felt like that's what San Diego State and and Butler did there on that final possession. I totally agree with you. I think it's worth taking it one layer deeper, which is like I I'm. In certain situations, I feel like I'm slightly more okay with taking the time out, but, but it was an amazing, I mean, maybe I'm giving too much credit, but in real time, you know, Davis is going towards the basket for that layup for FAU kind of like his momentum takes him out of the play on defense. Right. So like 
it was a it was a fast break of sorts, right? And and there's only whatever six or seven seconds left. Um, so I totally agree that like you're not going to draw up anything better. Um, but in that in that situation in particular, when you might have a chance to have some sort of numbers, and obviously, you know, he took a pass and and did it himself. Butler did, but I thought that was really well done because let's say there was. 20 seconds left and they, and they grab a rebound and it's okay, hold on, hold on. And they walk it up the court and they're waiting for it to be 10 seconds left before they move. I would be a little bit more okay with a timeout in that scenario. If you're not comfortable with calling some base half court offensive set, but I thought it was really impressive that it was like, no, get out and go. Um, and, and like you said, a, a player made a play, but yeah, I love it. Marches for players. I missed that quote, but I think that that makes a ton of sense. And that's, that's exactly what, what you should do. I did. I did think fouling was the right move there. Like FAU was shooting 75%. They, they're going to miss one at some point. If you extend the game there with 30 seconds to go. Um, but listen, it marches for players. They got to stop and, and made a play. And now they're playing for a title. So let's, I do want to dive into that a little bit deeper, deeper though, Brian. So seven second differential, I think it was 37 seconds on the game clock, 30 second shot clock when, when the shot clock started there, FAU's up to, in your opinion, the best thing to do there would, would be foul, like go for a steal, maybe foul right away with still, let's call it 33, 32 seconds on the shot clock just to continue extending the game. Yeah, so FAU's up one at that point. Oh, so one, I think, one, yeah, 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 yeah. So I think that that that's sort of the. It's in theory, it's never going to get beyond a one possession game. So I think that is an important differentiator, right? So if you, fa- yeah, I, I go for a trap, go for a steal, right? I'm fine with giving ten seconds away, but I think like, okay, you're the best case scenario. I mean, they got to stop, but I think like if you're down two with the ball and a chance to make a play, that's pretty good. If you find yourself down one with 35 seconds left, like give me a shot to do it. And so I, I, I just sort of feel, cause I, I think, you know, if, if Davis makes that layup, obviously it's an entirely different thing. You need a three to go to overtime. So I, I think playing the numbers, it would have been a foul situation, but I listen, Dutcher trusted his guys. I think it's also worth talking about though, that Florida Atlantic did call that timeout with 18 seconds left and they didn't involve Elijah Martin in what they drew up. And I think like, I, I, I think I would, I don't know if I would call it Dusty May overthinking it or underthinking it. You know, John L Davis is a great option, um, but he wasn't having a great game. He was two of eight to that point. Martin had 26 points and I wouldn't even call him a decoy on that last play. They just sort of cleared out for Davis. Now, did he get to the hole and get a decent look at it? Sure. Um, and, you know, I, listen, he trusted his guys too. But I, I like going with the hot hand in that in that scenario. And so, like I said, what, what I mean by I don't know if he was overthinking or underthinking, did he want to go to Martin and think that SDSU was assuming that was the case? That might be a little bit overthinking it, but um, – you know, I, I didn't love not having the super hot hand involved. Martin had just made a really tough layup to extend the lead to three with less than a minute left. That like kind of nifty reverse layup. Um, he was making plays and tough shots all night. So I, I, I would have liked to go down with my my guy who's been getting it done all night. Yeah, that 
Elijah Martin layup. I was thinking about this after the game, and I'm like, if he if they end up just winning that game, I think that's the play you probably remember because that was an unbelievable finish yeah. by him. And I think he is going to be, you know, it, it's kind of unfortunate because I think if FAU wins that game, that's a performance that you remember for a long time. Elijah Martin's 26 points in the final four. And now, uh, sadly, I don't think you really remember it. Like, he will remember it. FAU fans will remember it. But the broader college basketball universe, I and we're going to get into kind of moments here in just a few minutes. But, like, I, I'm kind of a believer that you really only have one moment per tournament that most people can truly remember. Like in six years from now, you look back at 2022, you're going to have one moment. And uh, Elijah Martin's not going to be that that moment. That game is not going to be that moment. And it, it was a great effort from him. What, what I will say about FAU's decision-making in the final whatever, or the decision for San Diego State not to foul and how FAU played out that final minute FAU only scored six points in the final 747 of that game. They hit 65 points with 746 to go. And then they only scored six the rest of the way. And I felt like that last defensive possession by San Diego State, I felt like it was a good it was a good representation of what helped get them back in that game. And that was what they thrive on, what they hang their hat on, that physicality on defense. I think it was a rope who was defending on that final play, um, and he made a really nice defensive play. He made it tough, to, you know, it, it contested that shot well. And I guess that would be, for Bri- if you're Brian Dutcher, you're San Diego State, and you pride yourself on defense. You say, we are a defensive team. I think I get, and and we've gotten back into this game with defense. I think I understand the decision not to, not to foul there. I think, I don't think I would have questioned it at all if he did foul. And certainly, uh, if it didn't work out, if they had, you know, scored if they had gotten fouled whatever they had gotten an offensive rebound you'd hear a lot of second guessing today I think I really could live with it either way but I do like the idea of like we have an identity we hang our hat on this we are tough we get stops and we need one stop now and we're gonna go do it I I can't hate that I can't hate that at all so I I think I'm fine with that Um, I thought the Dusty May timeout with whatever it was I don't know how much time was left there. 18 oh, seconds. 18 seconds. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I think you're right. Like it felt like they didn't know what to do once they got over half court or it's, it's a little bit of the issue we see in college basketball, right? It just feels so overcoached sometimes. Like he didn't trust his guys to go out and, and make a play. Um, and what he drew up, I mean, it's not, it's not a, really a knock on him again. I'm, kind of fine with it either way but I I think you have better chance there to just kind of let that thing play out a little bit than than take that time out maybe it is more of hey just want to get everybody on the same page want to make sure we have our plan for if we miss what we're going to do defensively like I I get that I don't know it just seemed like a we have a timeout so we're going to take a timeout type of thing so I don't really think I can knock him a ton for it but it just seemed like a we have this time out so might as well use it type deal yeah yeah I hear you and I think if you let them play it out uh, like uh, 
I mean, he also knows that San Diego State's calling Carter's defense. So it's like, okay, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he didn't trust his guys because he shouldn't trust his guys to a certain extent against a really good defense. But I think, like, uh, yeah, you, you, I, I think they were caught off guard. I really do. I think they thought they were going to get fouled. I think they um, spent the San Diego State timeout after uh, Ladie's jumper that made it a one point game, uh, talking about. Okay, we're going to get fouled. Let's make free throws. Here's the defense we're going to go with. You know, no threes once we hit our free throws, that sort of thing. Um, and so, yeah, I, it, it it's tough. It's tough to not have something, you know, in your pocket you can call in the half court in, in real time. Um, and what he drew up, like you said, they got a look, but, it, you know, it, it wasn't a good one. All right, so let's move on a little bit from that that last minute there because I think another big story of this game was FAU had a 14-point lead in the second half. Uh, I mean, they, you know, at one point I was like, okay, well, this is the San Diego State, this is San Diego State's flaw that we thought we were going to see at some point during this tournament where they have like 50 points and they seem like they can't finish and they're taking a ton of mid-range jumpers and they're not falling and they're not getting to the rim and maybe FAU's just going to run away with this thing and lo and behold, they obviously didn't. Uh, They had that big comeback. So what did you feel like changed for San Diego State to make that comeback? Because for me, I felt like it was just, it was kind of a matter of maybe not so much changing, but the physicality of San Diego State just eventually wearing FAU down. And I think uh, they did benefit from some extent, maybe from a tighter whistle or a, I guess, looser whistle lack of whistle, whatever the right term is there. I didn't think there was as many calls like later in that second half. So I I felt like just San Diego State's style of play, that physicality um, started to wear them down. And then, you know, when you play so physical, can't call everything. And refs tend to not call as much later in games. uh, You know, we kind of know that happens. I felt like that was the biggest thing to me. I mean, I was th- that was the biggest thing to me. And then, of course, the offensive rebounding. There was a stretch before they tied the game. San Diego State tied the game at 65, where they grabbed eight offensive rebounds in the previous two minutes and 10 seconds. Those were the two big things to me, just wearing them down. And then offensive rebounding is part of wearing them down physically. That's, that's kind of what I felt. Was there something that you saw different? No, I mean, that's, that's what I had written down too. I think like, uh, Eamon Brennan had a great article in the athletic today where it's, uh, it sounds like at halftime, the message for San Diego state was like, we need to be us. And that's exactly what it is, right? Like, like just lean into the physicality. This is what got us here. Defense and rebounding. Right. And, and that's exactly what they did. I do think like playing with a 14 point lead is weird, right? This is why, this is why those leads evaporate with relative frequency is like there was San Diego State had already started to come back and, and FAU was getting a little bit tight, but I circled this one, this one sort of stretch with like nine and a half minutes left and San Diego State had just cut it to four. Uh, I think it was Ladie hit like one of those mid ranges. He was, he was solid uh, for sure. Uh, particularly on that shot and FAU came down and took a three with 25 seconds on the shot clock, not a single pass on the possession missed. And then, Bradley comes down, gets fouled, hits both two point game. This is how comebacks happen quickly, right? Some some four shots, and when you go up by fourteen, you are. I, I don't know how you would have data on this, but like, 
I bet you teams take bad shots at a much, much higher clip when they have a 15 point lead. And, and like, that wasn't a good possession for them. They didn't do what they had been doing. Well, there was also a few, like when the comeback started happening, a couple of bad entry passes that went out of bounds. I, I remember two of them um, where it seemed like the play was there and they, and they didn't make it. So I don't know. I, I do think it was a bit of a combo. Like, like San Diego state got back to doing what they did well. Um, and FAU, I think, got away from a little bit of what was working for them. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's tough, man. It's tough to blow a lead like that in the final four. But they'll be. I mean, not, we're not moving on from the game, but they they should return most of the team. This is going to be a really, really interesting team next year, Florida Atlantic. And and you know, nothing to. It's it's funny you talked about. We we probably won't remember Martin's performance, and we'll talk about the fact that they got there. But in the grand scheme of it. Um, you know, they, they won't be the big story of this tournament, but they could make some noise next year too. All right, I want to move on to some big picture stuff here, Brian. Before we do, I do want to give a shout out to Matt Bradley here because I feel like physicality is what I think of when I think of San Diego State. But the other thing I think of when I think about this Aztecs team is any given night, there's somebody that can step up for them and be the one to carry the load offensively. And Matt Bradley was their leading scorer throughout the year, but he hasn't had the greatest tournament. Only scored two points in the Elite Eight win over Creighton. He was the guy. He was the guy against Florida Atlantic. He had 21 points. He had four threes. He kept them in the game. He was the reason they were still in the game when they were struggling to score. He hit some big shots to keep them in the game. And I feel like that epitomizes San Diego State offensively. It's like They are not the greatest offensive team, but they are a balanced offensive team. And they have somebody who can step up and make plays. And it, and it, might, be, it might be Bradley one night. Um, you know, it might be Butler the next. It might be, um, uh, man, who's the big guy? Uh, Mensa. It might be Mensa another night. But there's somebody there to make plays any every given night. And uh, so I just want to give a shout out to Matt Bradley. But I do want to get back to the moment, that Lamont Butler game winner, because that is the moment that we're going to remember. So I want to talk, because this is what I love, is I want to put this in some context. And I want to talk about where this fits in the history of big Final Four shots. So I made a list of some of the big, memorable Final Four moments. And what I found, Brian was that so many of these are title game moments. There's not a ton of semifinal moments out there. So I'm just going to run through this quickly. I'll, I'll run through the ones that like came off my head, came to my head right away when I think about big moments in the Final Four. Lorenzo Charles dunk in 83 for NC State to beat Houston. Chris Jenkins buzzer beater in 2016 for Villanova to win the national championship against North Carolina in the very same building, by the way. And great recall, great job by Jim Nance calling that out immediately. I love that. Uh, Hakeem Warwick's block in 2003 against Kansas in the title game that sealed the win for Syracuse and that Carmelo Anthony-led team. Here's a semifinal one that did come to my head right away. Jalen Suggs half-court buzzer beater against UCLA in the 2021 semifinal. Uh, going down my list more, Mario Chalmers three to send the 2008 title game to overtime versus Memphis. Jordan's go-ahead jumper in the 82 title game versus Georgetown. Keith Smart's go-ahead shot in the 87 title game against Syracuse. And then on the negative end, Chris Weber's timeout in the 93 title game. Those are the moments, like, real quick that I'm like, okay, this is what I think of when I think of big moments in Final Four history. There was only one semifinal moment there. 
am I am I missing something here? And if I'm not, where do you think this shot fits into kind of Final Four lore? I don't think you're missing something, but I think you pointed out my answer to this question, which is if Gonzaga beats Baylor and goes undefeated and wins a national championship, that Jalen Sugg shot is looked at as the greatest shot ever. We don't talk about it, really. It comes up in in the highlight tape because it was an awesome shot and he jumped on the scorer's table. But I think it's dependent on Monday night. I really do. And it, maybe it shouldn't be. But if San Diego State gets their ass kicked, like a lot of people think they might, it's it's a it's a footnote in the tournament, which sort of... I think it's unfortunate because it was it's it's an amazing play. No timeout, dribble into the corner, like you said, find some room, swish through a buzzer beater to go to the national title game. Um, and and so I I do I think if they win, it's it's right up there towards the top. Like I, as far as like I I don't think you know Chris Jenkins shot like unbel- like they, he literally won the national championship on the beautiful play, stroke to three. Lorenzo Charles obviously I I don't think it passes those. Um, it's just tough to, to like, if what he did happened in the title game, right? Of course it's, it's right there with those. Um, but you got to finish the job, right? History looks back at who won the title, not who's the runner up to a certain extent. No, you're totally right. And I mean, I, I didn't really think about it this way until right now, until you said it, but if Jalen's, if Gonzaga wins that national title, that Jalen Sugg shot is the 92 Christian Leitner shot. It's that the was, greatest that, shot. That was an it's elite eight, that's an elite eight game, right? Yeah. That Christian Leitner shot was in the elite eight. I have no idea. I just looked at it right now. Duke won a three-point game over Indiana in the next round in the semifinal. I've never seen a highlight from that game. No, no. Nope. I, I don't think I've ever seen anything <laughs> from that game. And uh, they, they beat the hell out of Michigan in the national championship game. So, you know, there wasn't a moment there. But that is the defining shot of that 92 Duke team. And really, I think that 91-92 Duke run, it's the Christian Leitner shot. And that would have been the Jalen Sugg shot. And people might not have even realized years later that was in the semifinal and not the the final against uh not the final against Baylor but it didn't happen and we don't talk about it that much like it, it does come to my mind but I you're right I think it's a little bit lost and I and I don't think you're wrong at all to say it does depend on what happens in Monday night and uh that is unfortunate I do think it's unfortunate because if so okay Let's just play it out then for a second. If UConn wins, if UConn wins by their seven and a half point favorite, UConn wins by eight points on Monday night. What is the defining moment from this tournament if there is no, you know, nothing crazy in that UConn San Diego State final? If it's a if it's a relatively easy UConn win, they win by eight, they win by ten, they win by twelve. What's the moment that you remember from this tournament? I have one. You do? I I don't I don't know. I mean, here's the thing. Like I I'm trying to think about how it would be discussed like if we were just shooting the shit talking about this tournament in 10 years, right? And it's like what happened in 23? Oh, that was the year that UConn was a 4 and just beat the heck out of everybody. Like I do think that would be the first thing that we say. Um but there I don't think that I mean, obviously, no close games. There hasn't been a a moment where it's like, this is when I knew that UConn was going to win it all or whatever. So I I don't know. I mean, I I, certainly the shot on Saturday stands out. What do you have? We'll see how well you respond to this. 
<laughs> I think it's the Marquise Noel alley oop to Keontae Johnson. Oh, okay. That's the yeah. moment that, like, that is the most exciting moment for me prior to last night, prior to that shot last night of this tournament. And I don't know why. I feel like there's been, like, I feel like there's more lore around that shot already when you combine mm-hmm. it with, like, uh, Marquise Noel saying, watch this to Mateen Cleaves right before it happened. The argument with Jerome Tang and, like, was that planned? Was it not? Like, I feel like there's more lore around that already in the week or two weeks since it happened, then there is, or no, it's not, it's 10 days since it happened, yeah. right? In 10, 10 days since it happened, there's more lore around that than I think there will ever be around this shot, Butler shot last night, unless they go on to win the national championship. If they win the national championship, no doubt, that's what you remember, unless they hit another buzzer beater against UConn. <laughs> but if UConn just wins by 10 points, I, I think I'm always going to remember that Marquise Noel to Keontae Johnson alley-oop. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. You're you're a college basketball diehard, and that I think that that is who would remember that play. But I think like it is, it was the most fun moment, along with last night uh, of this tournament. I think it's surprising, you know, like you just sort of assume it happened in the first round at some point, but that was the first true buzzer beater of the tournament. Um, and so, yeah. No, I think that's fair. No, I have a good reaction. Also, I this Kansas State team was so fun. And so I, I feel like I'm just I do feel like we would be like, you know, years from now, like that was that was a wild thing. A team full of transfers making that elite eight run, you know. Was there a moment from Purdue's upset loss to Fairleigh Dickinson that stands out? I don't feel like there was ever a moment because much like UMBC beating Virginia, like Fairleigh Dickinson kind of controlled that game throughout. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think they did. I mean, it was one of those things where it's like uh, you get the score bugs during the first round and it's like, okay, like if it gets under 10 minutes, we ought to turn this on sort of thing. And then from the moment you started paying attention, it was like, oh, no, they they seem like they're better than them. <laughs> and so, uh, no, I, I, I don't think so. It's the same. That is funny. That's a good point. Both 16s that have won just sort of like, we're like, no, we're good. We're we're better. There's no this isn't this isn't anything. Just the better team in both yeah, scenarios. <laughs> we'll see if Purdue comes back and wins a title like Virginia does. Yeah, we will. We will. And it <laughs> does seem like there's a good chance Zach Eady is gonna come back. So we'll have plenty of time to talk about that in the offseason. Yeah. Man, it's been a wild offseason already. Uh, yeah. but we, we got it, we got final four talk. Gotta stay focused. We've got to stay focused here. <laughs> Brian, this show is built on a love of both college football and college basketball, and we are diehards of both. So I want to ask you, what do you view as more of a Cinderella story? San Diego State making the title game in basketball or TCU making the football title game this year? So I have my answer, and I and when I looked at this question, I I – I thought it was sort of a no brainer. And as I'm saying this, I'm, I might be walking it back a bit because of conference affiliations and things. So, and based on your smirk, I think you're going to disagree with me. Uh, I, I said TCU, I think because they were just picked to be non-competitive in their conference at the beginning of the season. I think that that does factor in here. Like, no, we didn't think San Diego state was going to, make the title game, but they were expected generally to win their conference coming off a top 25 team uh, season. They had experience, you know, TCU's got a first year head coach and 
not expected to do anything at all. So I think without taking it any further than that, my answer would be TCU. If you think about the fact that like, yeah, but at least they're a power conference team and San Diego State is not, I could I could get on board with that. But my answer is TCU. I mean, even after they were winning, other than on this very show, nobody was respecting them until much, much closer to the playoffs. So um, yeah, I, I think I think I was... I would give the nod to TCU. No, I would actually agree with you 100%, Brian. Okay. I, I actually think <laughs> these programs are very... I think these programs and their respective sports are actually very similar in a lot of ways. Mm. Like, I, I would view that TCU run very differently if they hadn't been so... If they hadn't kind of hit rock bottom at the end of that Gary Patterson era and they weren't in year one of Sonny Dykes. Like if you had told me TCU, here's, here's how I would compare the San Diego state team to TCU football. If TCU had made the national championship game in let's call it 2016 or 2017, I think that's where San Diego state basketball is right now. It's been a build, right? Where like, these are programs that are, at least at for a while for TCU was not in a power conference, um, but have always been very competitive in their respective sports. And they'd earned a reputation, uh, deservedly so, for being able to compete with anybody. And San Diego State lost their biggest opportunity. A lot of teams lost an opportunity with the COVID canceled 2020 tournament. But nobody lost a bigger opportunity than Dayton and San Diego State. Because that was a year where those two teams, Dayton was going to be a one seed and San Diego State was either going to be a one or two seed. And I think it's very easy to forget how much they had built to that point. Uh, But since they, and I said on one of the shows in the last two weeks, since Kawhi Leonard stepped foot on campus at San Diego State, I don't think there is a better non-Power 6 program out there other besides Gonzaga, because Gonzaga's in a tier on their own. But San Diego State is, is a clear number two to me since Kawhi Leonard stepped on campus in, I think it was 2010. So I view those two programs very similarly. But to your point, what I think makes... TCU much more of a Cinderella is they had hit rock bottom and they had gone through a coaching staff change and they were not expected to do anything last year and they did it. I don't view San Diego State as much of a cinder. This is not a Cinderella story to me. This is a story of a team that if if you change their name to Creighton and you put them in the Big East, like this is a nobody would say that's a Cinderella, would they? If Creighton, like let's just say Creighton had won that game. Would, do you think anybody would have called Creighton a Cinderella? No. I mean, I think I think we as a society like the Cinderella narrative, so they would have sort of forced it on here, which might be happening with San Diego State as well. But no, I, I agree with you. I don't think that that would be the case. Yeah, and I view those two programs very similarly in terms of what they've accomplished. Uh, Creighton's had a little more tournament success, but really not much. Under Greg McDermott, this was only their second Sweet 16 appearance this year. Did you realize that? No, I w- I'm surprised to hear that. So I would have I, a, a handful more, yeah. I, I view those programs very similarly, I, and I think this has been a build for San Diego State. And to me, this is more of like a, we have been building to this. This is not a fluke. This is This is not a fluke at all. This is something that has been a long time coming and maybe not a national championship uh, appearance, but like an elite eight, a final four, 
Uh, I'm going to pat myself on the back one more time here on this show for betting on San Diego State on March 3rd to go and do this. Like they have, I love teams that build, that have an identity, that build an identity. And San Diego State has that defense first identity. They've always been that way. And I just, I just wasn't, I don't view this as the the little engine that could. I view this as a very slow build over two very good coaches who have built this program into something that uh, is a, a competitive program year in and year out. So for me, I agree with you. It's, it's TCU. They're, they are the bigger, uh, they were the bigger Cinderella to me in, in that regard. Let's see. All right. Where else can we go? Big picture. I want to stick with San Diego state because I do want to celebrate. I want to touch on FAU and I know we're like going a little long here, but it is the final four. So let's, let's just keep this thing rolling. San Diego state, where do they take this from here? Where can they take this from here? Like, do they have the ability to truly become a peer with Gonzaga where it's not just Gonzaga's on, on a tier unto their, unto their self. And then there's everybody else in San Diego state's the, the the best of the rest. Like if they win a national championship, they will have won the, a national championship before Gonzaga. How much, like, I, I'll, I'll start there. How much would that hurt Gonzaga fans? <laughs> yeah, a lot, uh, a lot, a lot. They, they, I'm sure like, you know, they were like, if someone's going to do it, it's going to be us. And it's only a matter of time. And this, for this to, again, not come out of nowhere, but like there have been tournaments where Gonzaga was supposed to win the national championship. And that has never happened for San Diego state. So yes, that would be rough. Yeah. I mean, for my money, Gonzaga is Kansas and Gonzaga are the clear two like best programs you have in college basketball over the last 10 years. Right. Yeah. Like I, San Diego state is not a Cinderella to me, but they're not Gonzaga. No. Um, but I, it's an interesting concept. This idea of a, of another non power conference team, getting to that upper echelon a few thoughts on it one like it it took mark few a long time to get here um and there's a lot of building but yeah i think winning a title does wonderful things i think um most people i guess i can't say all don't want to offend any listeners would rather live in san diego than spokane uh i think that that that's a place that you can get people to want to go. Um, so I, I don't want to, um, it's not a knock on Brian Dutcher to say like, no, I don't think that they're going to become Gonzaga, even if they win. It's just like next to impossible to do, but I don't think it's like entirely unheard of. I think, I think that Winning a title would be absolutely massive for the future of that program. Newfound respect, newfound money, newfound fans, all this stuff. Um, yeah, I think it'd be hard to take it to another level, but damn, you won a national championship, you know? Yeah, I think it just automatically puts you in a tier, in a different tier, especially with the fact that, sorry, let me walk this back. A different, it, it puts you in a different tier than you are right now in terms of the type of players that you have access to in type of, in terms of the type of interest around your program. Like my sister, as you know, lives in San Diego, in San Diego, a very loyal listener of the show actually. And like, she was texting about people in their neighborhood, like going crazy about San Diego state. I mean, that's the kind of thing that can happen. I, the closest we've seen to it really is Butler, probably. Butler going to back-to-back Final Fours, back-to-back title games? 
Is that right? I know. I mean, there was the one with the Gordon yeah. Hayward shot. They lost to Duke, and then yeah, wow, is it back to back? Let's nice. see. It's fantastic. Final Four 2010-2011, runner-up 2010-2011, yeah. yeah. Back-to-back national championship games, and clearly, like, they haven't quite been able to sustain that level of success, so it's it's really hard. Like, it is a mm-hmm. very hard thing, and Butler, Indi- Indiana is a college basketball crazed state, right? So you would think if anywhere can kind of sustain it, uh, it would be Butler, and they made the move to the Big East. San Diego State might find themselves in a very similar situation where they could be moving to the Pac-12, Brian. It, I mean, that's not out of the realm of possibility at all. I mean, there might even be some interest from the Big 12 in acquiring San Diego State. And if the Big 12 made some type of move where they uh, they get the four corner schools, which has been widely discussed, they get San Diego State, they get Gonzaga as a basketball-only member. Like, that, this is the type of thing that makes that I think makes the common fan be like, why would the Pac-12 want San Diego State to? Why doesn't the Pac-12 add San Diego State? So I think just in this unique moment where that we're in, where they could potentially be moving up into one of these power conferences, and for however long the Pac-12 remains a power conference remains to be seen. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think just the timing could be right for them to really start something special here. If it, if it coincides with them making the move to uh, a power conference, it's not easy. I wouldn't bet money on it that they're like going to go to another final four within the next 10 years or anything like that, but they have an opportunity. And to be fair to Butler, like Butler sustained it pretty decently for a while, but they, how many coaches has Butler had since Brad say, Stevens? Yeah, Brad Stevens left and like that. Obviously, I don't know that he was ever going to stay at Butler, but like that is an interesting wrinkle in this discussion is that like, I don't think Brian Dutcher's going anywhere the rest of his career probably. Like he seems, I, I, I don't know, it, maybe I'm wrong. He, he, he seems content. He's been there a while. He's, you know, um, following his guy, Steve Fisher. So I, I that that's another wrinkle because you're right, like, once Brad Stevens left, it's been a little bit bumpy from a coach perspective, right? They are on their fourth coach now. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They they are on their fourth coach now. And I mean, and Chris Holtman like had it going pretty well while he was there, right? He was only there three years, but they they earned a six seed, a nine seed, a four seed, went to the second round twice and won Sweet Sixteen, like before he jumped to Ohio State, which uh, of course you're going to jump to Ohio state, but I don't know. I think it might be, I think the West coast might make you a little more insulated there, which brings me to another just idea. I have to throw out here, Brian, because I love talking about like how to make college basketball better. And mm-hmm. I think West coast basketball right now, there's a lot of good teams, but they're just spread out. They're not all in the pac 12. They're not all in the mountain West, not all in the WCC. I had a wilder idea that I'm going to tamp down a little bit. Okay. What if we we had 10 teams this year from those three conferences make the NCAA tournament? What if we just started next year with some sort of 10-team tournament, the West Coast Championship? All 10 of those teams play a tournament in November to kind of kick things off. And maybe the winner, the the championship, is a series. It's a two out of three series. Because we don't get enough best-on-best basketball on the West Coast. UCLA Gonzaga, for my money, 
there may not be a better rivalry in college basketball right now than UCLA-Gonzaga. Can we get that game happening more? What do you think about that? Can we make this happen? I like it. I like it. We got to get you in some sort of czar position where you can just make this call. I think that's, I think it's a great call. I think building more excitement around the start of the season, more best on best basketball, like you said, and there's a lot of teams. I think it would be even more beneficial for like the, the middle, like the Boise's and the Utah States, right. Who like get a, get a crack at this. And that's only going to help them come tournament time. And so, um, yeah, I love it. I love the idea. Yeah, I just want to see, I want to see more creative things. Like if anybody, and it's interesting, I do feel like of all the conferences who would do creative things, Brett Yormark and the Big 12, they seem like the one, the the conference that's like most out there, that's most willing to try things, be a little different. The Pac-12, the West Coast schools need to do something because like, it just seems like every year they lose engagement they lose the attention of the national college sports fan and there's good teams there there's good basketball there but they're just not all in the Pac-12 so like get Gonzaga involved in some way get San Diego State involved in some way do something to just elevate all those brands collectively I just like to see something all right we got a whole nother game to get to Brian but I do want to touch on FAU so what will you remember about FAU when you think back about this run about this team that it should have been Memphis, like I picked in my bracket. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that was a narrow escape. It's funny how that works. Uh, in Memphis these blew that game. Right? They blew the Memphis game. Memphis blew that game. They should have won that game, and we shouldn't be talking about this at all. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it, it was a, a run that put this team on the map. I mean, I think like – Lest we forget that they lost three games this season <laughs> up until the tournament, right? So this was a team that was familiar with winning and and uh, kept it rolling. And obviously, hindsight's twenty twenty, but like maybe a touch underseeded as a nine. I, I I don't know. It seems like it. Um, they they play a, a fun brand of basketball, and I I think, ah uh, man. I, I think they sort of had this game too. I think they sort of had this game too. Like I do think if I'm thinking about this run and we look at this box score and we're like, oh man, yeah, that was the buzzer beater game. I do think one of my first thoughts will be, yeah, FAU blew a 14 point second half lead and and they sort of they sort of let it go, which is a sad lasting image. And they and the and the players shouldn't hang their heads about it. It was quite a run. But I think as a fan, that's my memory of this team is like Dang, it was a quite a run, and they probably should have been in the national title game too. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think it's a really fair takeaway from this team. I mean, I think not many people – there are many people in the country who didn't know that FAU was a school that existed before sure. before <laughs> this run. So, like, I mean, when you say put them on the map, I, I they really did – this team put that school on the map. Looking, spinning this forward a little bit, like I, I don't know if you saw that Matt Norlander article on CBS Sports where he wrote about Dusty May wanted to quit hours after signing. The oh, FAU I did contract. see that. Yeah, he just, thought he made a huge mistake. Huge mistake. He saw the facilities. It was just, it was terrible. He thought he, the quote is, I just committed career. I walk in the room and I started crying and I said, I just committed career suicide, end quote. Man. Um, I mean, what a journey for him. But that does beg the question, you know, 
he is now an up and comer in this industry. Um, I think he will stay put. There's not really any open jobs left this year. I think he will stay put this year. Um, they have a very young team. They out of the guys that play on that team, only one guy is a senior. They could theoretically bring back 99% of, of that roster and uh, all of the big names on that team could come back. But the question now becomes like, can they do it? How Look, we, we talk about like what can San Diego State become. George Mason in 2006 went to a Final Four. They had Jim Laranega as their head coach. George Mason, since that point, has not had a ton of major basketball success. It is a really, really hard thing to do, and I'm just not sure if Florida Atlantic is equipped to, to do that. Like, In fact, I, I'm going to say I, I'm not going to bet on them to do it because it's really hard and it takes a really big commitment, and I'm not sure if, if it's there for them. I think that's totally fair. I also think like the odds that we see nobody from this team go portaling seem really, really low. Like I, I, and I'm the one who said earlier, like, okay, they lost three games and they're returning everybody. They can make some noise next year. Um, that's not really how the world works now. Like it, maybe they'll come back, but uh, these guys are going to get high major interest. They're going to get NIL money that they can't get from FAU. Um, and, and I think it is even tougher now to sustain success than it was for George Mason for sort of that reason, right? Like you have to re-recruit your own roster and, and there, there is a certain extent of that. So um, no, I don't expect them to do it. I do think that, you know, if they return most of the roster, they'll be favored in, in conference USA and that's great. Um, but it's, it's hard. I think there is something that is just like standalone. Okay. With being proud of this crazy run and like, now we're going to try to be competitive and I think they're getting some new facilities and that's wonderful. Um, but I don't expect them to be like a perennial tournament team. That's second weekend or anything like that. And that's what I think sets them apart or what sets San Diego state apart from FAU. That's why I view these two teams so differently. Like in this given year, FAU had maybe just as successful, if not more so uh, of a regular season than San Diego State did. I think like these two teams were very similar this year. They they um, were pretty evenly matched teams, but just program wise, I view this whole San Diego State thing as a long build where FAU, yes, Dusty May has done some building there. They had a great season, but it, it's not the same sustained type thing that we've seen at San Diego State. And, it, you know, is it possible they get the facilities? This brings in a ton of interest, a ton of money. Sure. Yeah, it's it's possible. But to your point, I, I find it almost impossible to believe that there will be nobody who leaves and is able to score a big NIL deal and play on a bigger stage under brighter lights. Um, the offers will be there and it's, it will be shocking if somebody doesn't leave. So it, it remains to be seen. I'm, I'm not going to bet on FAU sustaining it. It's not a knock against them, really. It's just a uh, there, there's nothing wrong with being proud of this specific run. So San Diego State will be taking on UConn in the championship game on Monday. And I think of the two games, that was FAU San Diego State was the more interesting one, the more exciting one, certainly. But Miami or UConn rather did what UConn has done all tournament and they won and they won by a lot. UConn beats Miami 72 to 59 to adjust or to advance to the championship game. 
Brian, for me, this game basically felt over when Adama Sanogo hit two threes and UConn jumped out to a 9-0 lead. How about you? Yeah, man. It was like, here we go again. Like, I keep looking for a reason to not expect UConn to blow all these teams out, and then they come out firing like that. I'm totally with you. Yeah, I mean, just another ho-hum impressive performance, man. I saw a Danny Hurley quote after the game about how they feel like they're able to, like, body blow, I think is the term you use, their opponents. Um, They're good at rebounding, they're good at defense, and they can find sparks on offense and so body blow kind of felt accurate to what UConn has done to everybody that they've seen in this tournament. Um, I think they would have been the first team ever. They just barely missed being the first team ever to win their first five tournament games by 15 points a piece. I mean, they are that, I don't know. I feel like we're, you and I, like we're the only ones who didn't see it coming too. I feel like everybody with the bracket reveal was like, Oh, that's a, that's a good path for UConn. I was like, what are you, UConn? What are we talking about UConn? And, Man, they're 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 as dominant a team uh, in the tournament uh, as I can remember in recent memory. It's 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 been really impressive, and it was just another one. They they Miami's a a very good offensive team. That's their calling card. They didn't break sixty. They made Miami so uncomfortable the whole game, um, and that's what they do. They seem to be able to have an answer for whatever your strength is. Um, and you know, that's the calling card of a great team. So yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm just tipping my cap at this point because they're doing things I did not expect them to do. I love that you called out the defense and what they did against Miami, because that was a story to me of the night is how they held Miami in check defensively. The word I would use when I watched Miami last night and I watched Isaiah Wong was rushed. I just felt like they were uncomfortable and rushed all night long. And that's a major credit to UConn. I mean, that is what UConn... Look, we're going to have a defensive battle. We're going to have some athletes on this floor who are committed to defense on Monday night. Uh, I... I had been like up and down on this Miami team for a long time. I love their score. I love their guards. I love their ability to score. I thought their inability to play defense. I thought they were very similar to Baylor. I kept grouping mm. Baylor and Miami in the kind of same bucket where I'm like, these are great offensive teams with great guards, but I don't trust them to play defense. And ultimately, that's not really what killed Miami last night. Uh, they, you know, I mean, UConn put up 72, but it was, it, they didn't score. I mean, it, UConn hold, held them under 60 points. And I just keep coming back to that word rushed with Isaiah Wong. It, he just felt rushed to me all night long. And uh, huge credit to UConn there. The other thing that stood out to me to oh, UConn is they're just so deep, man. They are so deep. You have Adama Sanogo inside. He goes to the bench. What do you do? You just bring in Donovan Klingon, who looks every bit as big as Zach Eady does, despite being two inches shorter than him. I think he's set listed at 7'2", Eady 7'4", but he looks like just, he looks to me just as physically big as in, and imposing as when you see Zach Eady on the court. Like, he stands out in that kind of way. And a huge moment in that game, Miami cut it to eight in the second half. Donovan Klingon grabs an offensive rebound, gets a bucket. Then, like, a, a couple possessions later, he got an offensive rebound. Uh, they inbound the ball. He, it, it, the, UConn misses a shot. Klingon is there to kind of like, I don't think he got credit for an offensive rebound on this one, but he 
basically made it difficult for the Miami, uh, for whoever it was on Miami to grab the ball and it kind of got tipped out to UConn, UConn scores. Donovan Klingon made his presence felt in that game. And I think that is part of like why UConn is so good is because it's all like Sonogo is the guy on that team for this tournament. I mean, he's been a force and he goes to the bench and you have Donovan Klingon making his, his presence felt. So UConn is just a team. They're deep. They play good defense. Uh, they shut down Miami, and like they've been impressive. I, there's nothing you can say other than UConn has been impressive. I have been questioning them all year because they didn't. They've they've been doing this point guard by committee deal, and you know they don't really have a true point guard. Andre Jackson is essentially their point guard. Like, even though he's a wing, he is kind of like the point guard of that team. And I didn't really, I didn't really trust it, but boy, oh boy, is it working? And, uh, I don't know. I think all that, any doubts that we had, uh, have to be pretty close to gone at this point. I'll probably bet against them for a fourth straight time on Monday night and lose <laughs> again. Well, I don't know why I wouldn't. So yeah. yeah, that's kind of where we're at on UConn. I mean, uh, just uh, unbelievably unbelievably impressive performance by the Huskies. Yeah, there's nothing more frustrating than you know, like when when a team has a dominant big, you try to get that big in foul trouble or something or whatever it is. And but when their backup is just as annoying, like I think about you know, uh, there's no Maryland minute in our Final Four episode. But when they played Alabama and Bediaco went to the bench and they had Noah Clowney who was also bigger than anybody that Maryland had on the floor. Right. So um, yeah, they're deep. There's, there's, there's not a ton more to add. It's funny. Like you want to dive deep and break down a final four game, but UConn just did what UConn's been doing. And I'm with you, man. This is one of those things that like, I, we're going to get into our bets, but like, this is one where I, I think I might regret as well what I end up doing because UConn has given nobody any reason to bet against them at any point, like at all. Um, and that might be where we're trending on this podcast. <laughs> all right. Well, let me, let's dive in big picture to UConn then a little bit more since we've kind of hit the nitty gritty there with them. My one thing about UConn, they have beat a 13 seed a five seed, an eight seed, a three seed, and a five seed. And they will face a five seed in the national championship game. They've won their games by an average of 20.6 points per game. An extraordinarily impressive number. But they haven't faced a one or two seed yet in this tournament, and and they won't. And you look, you can only play who's who's put in front of you, right? So, uh, I mean, you can't, you can't hold that against them. But taking that into, the count, into account, if they win the title... How does this run compare to the most dominant performances of all time? Even if they beat San Diego State by a point, they will still have beaten opponents by 17.3 points per game. That's if they just win that game by a point. So where does how does this compare for you? Um, and as a few points of comparison here, like I just want to Villanova in 2016, they won their games by an average of 20.6 points per game. Lowest margin of victory was three over North Carolina in the title game. Of course, that's on the Jenkins three. And they beat Oklahoma 95 to 40, 95 to 51, a 44 point margin of victory in the final four game. I believe that was the Trey Young final four year and uh, absolute blowout in that one. I'll never, I, that one, like, 
you don't usually remember blowouts. I remember that one. I I do because yeah. it was just that bad. Uh, yeah. But so that's that is the in like the Ken Palm era. I think that was. I didn't look at every single year. There's a bit of a like a Ben trivia question here. I didn't look at every single year, but of the years I looked at, this is the team I found that had the biggest margin of victory. Yeah. Uh, 2016 Villanova statistically seems to be the biggest margin of victory or the team that had the the largest margin of victory over the course of a national championship run over the last 20 years or so. So how, how would UConn's run compare, do you think, to a team like yeah, that or so, some of the other dominant teams? So I think the, the, the other data point that I want to factor in is one you, you mentioned, the, who you've played, right? And so I, again, I, I didn't do every year ever, but I did look since the year 2000. So from 2000 national champion on, and I added up the seeds that they've played, right? So in theory, a bigger number is an easier path because you're playing higher ranked seeds. That 2016 Villanova team, since 2000, had the second smallest number, meaning they had the second toughest road, and they won by 20 points per game. So they their average seed opponent they faced was a 4.8 seed. That Villanova team went 15, 7, 3, 1, 2, one. So they beat two ones, a two and a three and one by 20 points a game. Of course, only the title game by three points. So UConn is sort of in the middle. Um, if you, if you filter out one seeds there towards the top, the, the Florida in 2006 had like a supremely easy schedule because they got George Mason in the final four. And so they faced two 11 seeds in addition to a 14 and a seven. You don't always see that, right? But UConn, uh, if they will have 40, so an average of 6.7, um, like you said. So listen, it, they're, they're dominant and we'll see, right? If they, if they, I think if they win the title game by double digits, that does add another level to it. Like I'd want to see what their average margin is, but it's like if they win every six games in a row by double digits on the way to a championship, I mean, they're right there at the top. But I think, like, not a one or a two seed. Villanova beat 1-2-1 one, one in their last three games, um, including that 40-point win. So I think that was the most dominant run I've seen. But UConn's right there. Like, they're not – they're weirdly not even the story of the tournament while they're just blowing their way through the tournament. It's just, it's like we talk about moments. They're just like, yep, oh, UConn played again and won by 15. Um so they're almost like mind-numbingly good right now. There's nothing to talk about. Um, but yeah, man, this is this is up there. And we got to see what happens Monday, but this is up there for sure. I feel like they compare very favorably to 2018 Villanova, potentially, where that was a team that like they had some really big wins. They beat Alabama by uh, 23 in the second round. Uh, they, in the biggest point for that team is they beat Michigan by 17 in the championship game. Uh, but then they like beat Texas tech by 12. They beat uh, West Virginia by 12. So I think they, they would compare very favorably to that team. And that's a really good team that featured Jalen Brunson, Mikhail Bridges and Dante DiVincenzo. Uh, yeah. Not bad company to be in. And Colin Gillespie, I didn't even realize Colin Gillespie was a freshman on that team. I don't think he played Jeez. too much on no. that team, but a really good team. Like, so you are talking about, look, you, you can only play who you play, right? Like UConn did not have an option to play teams that were 
that were seated higher. If they did, maybe things would have been different. Maybe they wouldn't have. You can only play who you play, and nobody's returning a national championship because the teams you played weren't good enough. So they have done every single thing asked of them. I can't hold that against them at all. I think there was two teams on this list that really stuck out to me, and it was 2016 Villanova because of that 44-point thrashing of Oklahoma in the Final Four. And then 2009 North Carolina, which is, I just think, one of the best teams we've ever seen. Um, And that was a time when we were really deeply invested in ACC basketball. So um, I don't know, maybe like we're a little biased on that one, but that North Carolina team sticks out to me as just being a really fantastic dominant team led by Tyler Hansborough. Ty Lawson was on that team. Wayne Ellington was on that team. Danny Green was on that team. Um, And that was a team that kind of ran through the tournament, didn't have a ton of close games, blew out Michigan State in the championship. But that's the kind of thing a lot of these teams I'm mentioning had really big championship game win performances. Not that Villanova team with Jenkins, but the second Villanova team I mentioned blew out Michigan uh, in in the championship. North Carolina blew out Michigan State in the championship. I think blowing out San Diego State, which I am going to go ahead and predict I don't see happening because I just can't get on the right side of UConn, but I just don't see it happening. Like San Diego state does not strike me as a team that gets blown out. I think that would go a long way towards kind of securing their place in history as one of the most dominant champions ever, but nonetheless, an extraordinarily impressive run by UConn. Brian, I want to get to something that's been driving me absolutely nuts all week long leading up to this final four. I don't think there is anybody that has been more disrespected this week than UConn by this dumb narrative that we've decided we, the Royal, we of college basketball fans, college basketball media. I, first off, I don't know why everybody decided we're just going to talk about ratings this week and how nobody wants to watch. Nobody wants to watch Cinderella's in the final four and the ratings are going to be so bad. Like who cares? I don't care. Nobody cares. But beyond that, nobody has been more disrespected then UConn, all I've heard all week, there's no blue bloods in this Final Four. There's no big brands in this Final Four. Nobody wants to watch that. Hello, UConn. UConn Huskies. In our lifetime, they are going for their fifth national championship in our lifetime. Do you know the last time Indiana won a national championship, Brian? When? 1987. Two years before I was born, I think three years before you were born, 1987. Are you... How can anybody sit here and tell me UConn is not a blue blood, but Indiana is a blue blood because they want this. This reminds me of Yankees fans. Sorry, I'm losing my train of thought. I'm being so fired up here. (laughs) This reminds me of Yankees fans like back when the Red Sox finally won a title and they'd be like, 26 rings, bro. 26 (laughs) rings. Like, do you, you have a fond memory of that 1901 title, buddy? You remember that? night that 1897 world series was that a good one did you enjoy that one because that's how i feel right now when people are sitting here and telling me that yukon is not a blue blood but schools like indiana indiana's a blue blood ucla is a blue blood like okay john wooden great that was a fantastic run how many people that are watching college basketball right now saw ever saw john wooden coach a game because it, it can't be many. I, I mean, UConn, Brian, I don't know what more there is to say. 
They're going for their fifth national championship since 1999. It would be their fifth national championship under a third different coach. Jim Calhoun, Kevin Ollie, and now Dan Hurley would all have national championships at UConn. And to me, that that says a lot if three different coaches can win national titles at your school. Do you know how many how many coaches have won a national title at Duke? One. One coach has won a national title at Duke. Mike Krzyzewski won a national title at Duke. Now, like North Carolina, you have multiple national title winning coaches there. To me, that says a lot. UConn is as blue as any blue blood in the country because anybody under the age of 40 thinks so much more highly of UConn as a basketball program than really anybody except probably Duke, North Carolina, Kansas, and maybe Kentucky. I think it's a fair take they're, and they don't, they're like, they're four and oh in national title games. They're dominant when they get there. They're, um, you know, I, I, sorry, I'm a little flustered. I forgot we let Kevin Ollie win a championship at UConn until you said that, but uh, that's a wild blip on the radar of history, but it counts. Um, and yeah, no, I, I'm totally with you. I think that, that they're there just because they're not, it's, it's weird that they're not sort of grouped in with, with that. But I, I think, it's only going to keep going, right? I mean, it's, it's a program that's, I think, built for sustainable success. Danny Hurley looks like the guy to do it. I don't think there's any reason that they won't be mega competitive for years to come um, and fully cement their status. But I think you make a great point. Do you know the last year that John Wooden coached at UCLA? <laughs> I don't. 1975. Yeah, it's 1975 was the last year he coached at UCLA. So let's just do a little quick mental math here. <laughs> if you are 48 years old, 48 years old, nearly 50 years old, you were born the last year that John Wooden coached. So you have to be at least, realistically, you have to be at least in your mid-50s to ever remember John Wooden coaching. I love college basketball history, Brian. I love history in general. Like, I I love putting this stuff in context. I love it all. But, like, what's the definition of a blue blood? Does a blue blood just mean, like, you were good a really long time ago and we should respect your program because of that? Or, to me, it means schools that are currently at the very top of the sport who have done so and reached the highest levels in recent history. To me, that's a far more accurate definition of blue blood than, like, you were good like the Yankees in the early 1900s. I think you nailed it. I think you nailed it. Get with it, olds who are listening. It's UConn's time. Like it is, and I'm not even a UConn guy. Like I don't, I don't have any love for UConn. Um, no. In fact, I like kind of dislike them yeah, a little bit. Kind of annoying, yeah. Just being like a you know Northeast basketball fan, and like I, I want Maryland to be what UConn is, right? Like I don't, yeah. I don't have a ton of love for them, but I mean they've earned it. They have, they have absolutely earned it. And while we're on this point, like I do want to praise UConn also because UConn's athletic department made a very tough decision that you do not see in this era at all right now. They made the decision to say we're gonna go back to the Big East because basketball is our bread and butter. Basketball is what matters to this school. It matters to this athletic department. And they were in the American because solely because of their football program, which is, is let's be honest, it's third. It, that's the third most important program at UConn, right? 
at, at best. Men's and women's mm-hmm. basketball are 1A and 1B, and rightly, r- rightfully so. I mean, they've earned the right to be 1A and 1B, and UConn said, look, we know football runs college sports, but we care about basketball here, and we're going to invest in our basketball programs and take care of our basketball programs, and I think they should be commended for doing so. Not every school has to be Alabama. Like There are plenty of schools where, yes, they have a good football tradition. Football is very important. It needs to be treated as such. At UConn, men's and women's basketball are the most important things, and UConn is well within their right, and I com- rights, and I commend them for prioritizing those programs and taking care of them and getting them in a, in a more beneficial position to uh, for better travel, for being in a more competitive conference, for giving the fan base the games that they want to see. So I just big kudos to UConn there. Big shout out to UConn for saying, hey, we know everybody else in the world is just football focused. At UConn, basketball is important and we're going to treat it as such. Yeah, and they paid like $20 million tax at the AAC. So they, they knew exactly how valuable it was. I think that's a great point. Okay, Brian. I mean, I do think we need to talk about Miami for a quick, for just a quick second here, because great run by Miami. Jim Laranega has now taken George Mason and Miami to Final Fours, and Miami kind of famously has done this uh, largely through the transfer portal. Um, Isaiah Wong, not a transfer portal guy, but Nigel Pack and uh, Omir, both transfer portal guys. Miami seems like they have the infrastructure in place to kind of just continue getting the biggest names in the transfer portal and whoever Laranega really wants for, for years to come. Uh, are they just going to do this over and over again? Yeah, they might. I mean, it works. They, they actually spoke specifically to it in one of the press conferences before the game that was like, this is, you know, we're proof that big NIL money and, and transfer portal, it doesn't impact people negatively. And you may remember um, I don't have an article up in front of me, but I believe like when they were bringing in Pack, there was something about Isaiah Wong wanted to make sure he was getting the money and he might leave. And so like it felt a bit messy. That was like very early on in NIL. And it was like, oh, wait, they're going to pay Nigel Pack this like he's signing a contract. And I remember it being like not off putting, but a bit surprising to read. Like in reality, this is this is what we're facing. And sure didn't seem to impact their performance on the court coming off an elite eight, getting to the final four. Um, so I, it's tough to replace your whole team every year. And I don't think that they're going to want to do that, but I think if you have the most NIL money in basketball and can get the pieces you need to plug the holes you have, then that does make sense. And, it is sustainable. It's going to be tough. I mean, Jerome Tang's not going to want to build his entire roster out of transfer portal guys every year, and they're not always going to get as far as they did. Um, but I, I think that this is a bit of the reality now, is that you you can go get guys that you need, and it can work, and it can lead to success. And it seems like that's Miami's plan and seems to be working. I think as long as Jim Laranega is there, that's the kind of – like. He is the coach who I trust to be like, okay, these are the guys you want. You have the infrastructure to make it happen. I just trust and believe in him that he will figure out, he'll figure out the right thing in terms of how to make the chemistry work. Yeah. Uh, I What I question more is like, whoever that next coach is, do they have the track record, the respect, the ability to, to make that happen? So I think as long as Larry Nick is there, they'll continue to be 
be pretty good um, and have the potential to do things like this. So a uh, great year for Miami. And I, and I look for them to continue to be one of the top teams in, in what is really a down ACC. Like there's no reason to me, they can't be right up there at the top of the ACC for the next several years um, with the infrastructure they have and, and the coach that Jim Laranega is. All right, let's get out of here with this, Brian. We've got a national championship game on Monday night. We are going to look ahead to it. UConn right now, seven and a half point favorite. The total in that game is 131 and a half. I will give you my pick and I am going to stick with San Diego State. I'm going with San Diego State plus seven and a half in this this game. I think UConn wins. I think it's close. I think it's close throughout. I I don't see San Diego State as the type of team that's going to get blown out. Now, what scares me to death is San Diego State has had a couple bad starts the last in both the Elite Eight game um, and this this most recent game. I mean, we talked about it. They were down 14 to FAU. I don't know, like, if if UConn comes out hot and is hitting shots and San, Di- San Diego State is down, UConn is very good defensively, and I don't know if San Diego State is going to get back into it. However, I'm, I'm going to kind of bet on the fact that it's a championship game. It's a lot of nerves. It's going to be a tight, tightly played game and I think the defenses really show out in this one I will probably go I'm not gonna do an I I may do an under bet I gotta look at that one a little bit more 131 and a half still pretty low um I'm just gonna go I'm going San Diego State plus seven and a half I will probably be wrong because I just cannot get on the right side of this UConn team. It just feels high to me. It feels high to me. They were five and a half point favorites over Miami last night. And I don't think San Diego state is two points worse than Miami. So give me, give me the Aztecs. Yeah, I'm with you. This is where I was leaning earlier. And I was saying, uh, we're going to regret it. It's one of those things that like, we might wake up Tuesday. Like they beat the heck out of everybody they faced. And why didn't we just understand that that was going to happen? But you're right. The teams that play like, San Diego State don't get blown out that often. I think that, you know, their calling card is great defense and and particularly they're really highly ranked in three-point defense. And I think if they can slow UConn down, slow the guards down, like I think Sonogo is going to get his and there to a certain extent that can be okay. Um, you know, I was looking for like a a place they made, but I went back to the Big East semi that they lost to like see what happened. And Sonogo got his 20 and 10 in that game. They, they out-rebounded Marquette by 10. Like they did what they did, um, but you just kind of like keep pace with them. I think by limiting threes, uh, San Diego State will be able to do that. So uh, I hope that it's a close game. I think it would be fun for it to be a close game. I wish it started a few hours earlier. It's my bone to pick. I'm old. 920 is I know it's central time zone game, but man, 920 is killing me. Um, but I think we're gonna get a good game. I think UConn wins. I think it's it's about a five point game. All right, Brian, I'm with you. We got a couple couple SDSU guys here just Go. rolling with the Aztecs one more time, going against UConn <laughs> one more time. Like I've had a great tournament, but if there's yeah. one thing I will look back and regret, it's like why could I not just believe in UConn. Adama Sanogo is my new Joe Burrow, you know? I can't I couldn't get on board with that LSU team and I'm not getting on board with this team. Oh, that's oh, I feel so bad about this pick now. You've made me feel so bad. I forgot how we both wrote I mean, oh, 
That Joe Burrow, Joe, I will never be able to bet again. I have never bet against Joe against Joe Burrow since that LSU Oklahoma game because he made Brian and I pay dearly while we watched it at the Mercedes Benz Dome, and uh, that's what Adama Sonogo is probably going to do on Monday night. But Brian, it was a pleasure breaking all of this down with you. A ton of fun, man. Glad to have you back. And uh, yes, hey, go go get some rest. And yeah, we'll thank you. Get some rest. Got to rest up for the game. Maybe uh, maybe watch the first half. Maybe that's all you need to watch. Safe. Maybe. Hope but not. <laughs> hopefully not. And uh, we'll get you back on here soon. Talk all the college sports that you all know and love out there. Until next time, keep the grill hot and the cooler cold.